Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Whether you're a brand, large business, small business, or an individual, you need customers. And the chances are some of your potential customers are probably listening to this podcast right now. From history, when Napoleon led Boulogne for a year, politics, if that person is poor, it's a bad neighbourhood. Then you have the disproportionate police brutality, which is meted out instantly at people of colour. Culture. Had they written it that Chris called an ambulance for hours straight away, and we wouldn't have learned about the severity of alcohol withdrawal either. Well done to the writers. Thank you for making a wonderful podcast, but I'd give Rotherham a miss. <laughs> the Rotherham Tourist Board. Geekdom. The flag is a graphic symbol, not a verbal symbol. You know, why don't we just write France on the flag? I mean, we laugh when you think of putting a country's name on a flag. Society or music. Young people began to turn away from their parents' ethics and their style of dress and they began to dance to a new type of music. Royfield Brown's podcasts are downloaded just under 100,000 times a month. So putting your message here could well be worth it. If you have something to sell or promote, why not email royfield at gmail.com and hear your product or service promoted. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's about to leave the Bay Area and go to Canada for Christmas. And today we are joined by Clint Losey, ex-Capitol Hill staffer in Washington, writer Emma Burnell in Walthamstow in London, and by political commentator and TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton, Ontario. Say hello, folks. Hi, hello. Hey. In a week that has seen a 90-year-old woman become the UK's first coronavirus vaccine recipient, we ask if split-screen America is here to stay. And even the New York Times wrote articles about how uh, dangerous mail voting, mail-in voting was. This is the first time we ever did it en masse, 
And I think we proved that uh, all three are profits. It's not only susceptible to fraud, it is easily susceptible to fraud, particularly if you have a plan or scheme which sounds eerily similar to what Joe Biden told us a few days before the election, that he had the best voter fraud team in the world. Well, they were good. I don't know that they were that good because they made significant mistakes, like all crooks do. Joining us now is Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. Pennsylvania is, of course, one of the states being sued by Texas and 17 other Republican-controlled states that are trying to have Pennsylvania's election results thrown out. I was going to use a more diplomatic phrase like uniquely unserious to describe the lawsuit. And it is based on debunked tweets and conspiracy theories, lies that haven't held up in court. And now we find ourselves with the president and some of these attorneys general trying to spin their wheels and uh, thwart the will of the people in at least four states. You and your fellow attorneys general from Michigan and Wisconsin issued a statement um, after this lawsuit was filed, um, calling it an, an insignificant attempt. You said these insignificant attempts to disregard the will of the people in our, in our states mislead the public and tear at the fabric of our constitution. There seems to be two Americas, one red and blue, an America which doesn't consume the same media, one where voter fraud is rife and one where Joe Biden is quietly assembling his new administration. This week, we had assessments of the coronavirus pandemic from President Trump. It's been a, a medical, bleh, a medical miracle. You know what? Medical miracle is not an easy thing to say <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not prepared for it. And President-elect Joseph Biden warning that a very dark winter is ahead. Is this two-speed America here to stay or can the Biden administration get all Americans singing from the same hidden sheet during his administration? Over to you, Clint Losey in Washington. Uh, yeah, you're definitely seeing a, a huge split between uh, people on the left and people on the right in terms of how they view the world. and. The coronavirus has definitely exacerbated that. Um, some of that comes down to just geographic distribution. You have a, a lot of conservatives in rural areas. Uh, you have a lot of Democrats and liberals in cities, and, and they were just hit differently with the coronavirus when it came up earlier this year. So uh, that that's really exacerbated those differing viewpoints, not just on uh, the virus and public health itself, but you know it's kind of retrenched a lot of the partisan viewpoints that that uh, preceded that. You, you have hinted at what I'm about to say in your answer, that the coronavirus has been the focal point for this kind of difference, uh, whether you people wearing masks or not, is one uh, key thing. But it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? That we do have this split screen narrative in terms of voter fraud, let's say. There are some Americans, not all Trump voting Republicans, but goodly amount of Americans that believe that, let's say, voter fraud is rife. And they are looking at these press briefings that uh, Giuliani is doing. And then there are a goodly amount of other Americans that believe that this was the most safest and secure election and that Biden has legitimately won the election. Very obviously, uh, a country can't survive in the long term where two sets of people fundamentally do not agree on facts. The question really for the three of you. I'm going to start with you, Clint, because you are our resident American. How can the Biden administration get Americans eventually in the next four years to sing from the same hinge sheet that there aren't people disputing facts with their own alternative facts? 
It's going to be a tremendous challenge. Um, you may have seen an, uh, an interview with uh, former President uh, Obama in, I think it was the Atlantic, and he kind of talked about the split between uh, what you might call two Americas. And the idea of an epistemic breach between the left and right is is not new. You definitely saw that after Trump was elected, but it definitely goes back to 2008 and the Tea Party. Um, and, and I'm sure that there's a, a longer study would kind of lay out, you know, how it came to be. Biden is going in to office against a, a longstanding issue that's dividing the country. And one of the things that, that kind of really worries me about how he navigates that is that this is not just the kind of the two sides to every issue paradigm that you may have seen in more normal times. It's not simply that Republicans are doubling down and tripling down on their viewpoint. It is something a little bit more psychological than that. Um, and it's really kind of stark how they are dividing the political sphere that everyone is either good or bad. People who agree with them are good. People who disagree with them are bad. And you, you see how Donald Trump was a walking contradiction of decency, but he's wrapped in this mythos of honor and virtue by his supporters. And on the other hand, you have John McCain and Mitt Romney, who are actually fairly decent guys, and, and they've just been totally vilified. I personally have difficulty seeing how that viewpoint is sustainable through all of the massive contradictions. And, and that's really what Joe Biden is going up against. How he combats that is, is going to be a long process, and he's going to have to be very patient to kind of draw those people back in to a more normal perception of uh, reality, really. Emma Burnell, the, the word of the day is epistemic. I'm having to look into my uh, mental thesaurus to understand what that word means, but I think I've just about got the meaning of it. Do we have an epistemic breach in UK politics, or can we say that this is purely or wholly an American phenomenon? It's definitely not just an American phenomenon. Um, you know, we're seeing this kind of division all around the world alongside the rise of strong men like um, Viktor Orban or Jair Bolsonaro, Erdogan in Turkey. You know, this is not simply a Western phenomenon. It's not simply a uh, American phenomenon, but America is where we see it played out at its most TV friendly, I suppose, would be the way to put it. What Donald Trump did was take political differences and turn them into a game show, because that's who he is. He's a game show contestant, he's a game show host. And I think there are important ideological differences that we don't talk about enough because we're too busy talking about the, the ephemera, the crap. When I think of Canadian politics, I don't think of the, the vitriol that we get in American politics. And that the vitriol which is starting to creep into UK politics, using your southern neighbour as an example, why do you think that Canadian politics is much kinder, at least when it comes to rhetoric? Yes, there are ideological differences, but they don't seem to be as, uh, there doesn't seem to be the epistemic, <laughs> using Clint's word, breach in Canadian politics at the moment compared to your southern neighbour. Well, there's a number of reasons. One of them being that we've always, at least in the you know, recent history, had a three-party system, if you will, within our parliamentary system. We have a third party that is kind of the party of conscience, the NDP. People think, you know, they'll, they'll probably never govern, but they always manage to certainly broker deals to keep Canada a little bit nicer and to the left during something like the minority parliament situation that we have. It keeps people from being 100% bifurcated, right? You can be liberal, you can be conservative, you can be NDP, you can be a blend thereof. 
it's a little bit more difficult to get this devotion to one side and devote generationally to one side like we see in the U.S. with people who've always voted Republican, always voted Democratic. It's almost as though, you know, it's kind of like God party country in the U.S. And in Canada, I would suggest it's really none of those three. <laughs> you know, That's just not how we navigate ourselves. We are who we are. We think of ourselves more as being Canadians in search of our own identity and much less so ascribing to the identity of a particular political party. And if you even look at the history of the political right in this country, it keeps breaking and changing and morphing. So we just don't have a grand old party and we just don't have, you know, so much of the baggage and the bifurcation that we see with our neighbors in the South. One thing, though, that we do see is a whole lot of garbage creep coming in through the media and also through our social media. We've seen it creep into our politics. We, we often see sort of shadows of U.S. vitriol and U.S. advertising and U.S. campaigns, but we never sort of see it full-throated because I think that here in Canada, we, we're kind of resistant to that. It's not working out so well for our neighbors in the South. And, you know, even if you looked up to the U.S. as I did as a young child, now, just watching the pandemic, every time we look at a map of our pandemic in Canada, we see, of course, the U.S. because we share the border and most of us live along it. And it looks like they're on fire compared to our worst red zones, right? So we always have this juxtaposition between the two countries and the pandemic has just put that into stark relief. We don't want to be like the Americans. Uh, no offense to our colleague on the program, but I think Canadians are very wary of that kind of political partisanship and that kind of vitriol and that kind of garbage. Talking about vitriol and uh, garbage, and is it bifurcation? Was that your word of the show? All right, well, thank you. Come on. (laughs) Right. Colleen, specifically, we've had small little forest fires in the Republican Party, specifically Arizona. Some of its members saying that the party echelon shouldn't have certified the results of the election. How important is this going forward? Is this just a case of a little bit of local difficulty? Or are we potentially seeing the fight for the soul of a non-Trumpian Republican Party going forward? I do think it's important, kind of to add to the the last part of that first, is that I think the battle for the soul of a non-Trumpian party has already been lost. (laughs) The the never-Trumpers were, in fact, kicked out. And, you know, it's been a difficult thing to be a Republican and not be a Trump supporter. But I, I do think that one of the big questions is how the Republicans are going to go forward after Trump leaves office. I think one of the big expectations that a lot of people had was that if the Republicans lost big in the election, that they would in fact go through uh, uh, something of a of an internal bloodbath. I already have my word of the day, so I won't call it an internecine bloodbath, but uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you're looking at how the blame game for the Republican Party is going to go. That could still happen if the, uh, the Democrats win both seats in, in Georgia and take control of the Senate. You could see something like that. But I, I think that there's just so many incentives for the Republican Party to hold on and maintain some amount of cohesion against the Democrats that, that I'm, I'm a little skeptical that, that a big breakdown in the party is going to happen. Clint, you look like a man to me that likes to go to Las Vegas and bet all on, on black, right? You look like that, t- that type of chap, as we would say, in, in the UK. Put your money where your mouth is, sir. Uh, what is going to be the outcome of those two special races in Georgia? I think the Republicans are going to win. I really would like to see the Democrats take those seats. I, I think that that would be a great accomplishment. But I think that, that Georgia is a very deeply red state. Uh, I think that there are a lot of officials that are have demonstrated recently, as recently as 2018, that they are willing to put their thumb on the scale, that there's just a lot of 
structural headwind, if you want to say it, against the Democrats in those races. So we're going to have a split government for the next four years. You heard it here first, folks, from Clint Losey. If he's wrong, email him, not me. Emma Burnell, Georgia, is it deeply red or isn't it kind of purple now? I thought we had Stacey Abrahams and her great work there getting out the African-American vote, etc., changing demographics. What are the chances that Clint Losey, the man who likes to bet big in, in Las Vegas, is wrong? They're not zero. I think Clint's probably right on the average probability. Um, yeah, if I were going to put money on it, I'd probably put money on the Republicans holding uh, those seats. But that's not to say, I mean, the Democrats are currently in the leading polls. What does that mean? Yeah, who gives a crap what the polls are saying? <laughs> Definitely the trend is going in the democratic direction. It's definitely a more purple state than it has been for a very long time. Things like the Atlanta suburbs are becoming more liberal and more democrat. So the more that remains the trend, the the closer the Democrats can can take it to the the Republicans in terms of, of contesting Georgia. Laura, I am really quite fascinated about this difference between uh, your average modal Canadian and with um, your average modal American. And I kind of say this all the time. You guys are a little bit more sober, a little bit more rational and a little bit calmer. And and I say this uh, with this in mind that um, some of these court cases that Donald Trump's legal team are trying to hawk around the United States are kind of based around this notion that Hugo Chavez has um, had a hand in uh, the American elections because the company that makes the voting machine software was Venezuelan and of course it's all part of a massive conspiracy. For our American cousins, for our American friends, why do conspiracy theories, political conspiracy theories, not seem to take hold in Canada. What is it about the the makeup of Canada where people just generally just don't go in for that type of uh, fantasy, would you say? I wish I could say that we didn't. I'm seeing an alarming increase in it, even at our local uh, city level. Some you of them sound totally right. undercut my question, Laura. <laughs> well, I'm always going to give you the true answer. Uh, <laughs> Our city council, um, it sounds downright Trumpian, calling us a cabal and, and saying that there's like a conspiracy against them, like bizarre language that in 25 years of following and having local shows I've never seen before. And where does that license come from? That license comes from the normalization of conspiracies in the mainstream from Trump and his megaphone and his fantastic skills, uh, which are, you know, he's the Barnum and Bailey. He's the flim flam man of the world of history, right? And so uh, I have seen that that creep coming into the country. Why do we not embrace it kind of wholesale? Because as I said, again, we're not we're not sort of so branded by a certain party that as soon as that party gets taken over by a cult leader, we suddenly all become part of the cult. So it's a little easier to have a little bit of a intellectual distance from some of the ideas and some of the rhetoric that's tested by our politicians. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is if you're like, you know, the younger sibling and you look up and you see your older, bigger sibling always getting in trouble for doing stupid stuff, you kind of say to yourself, I really don't want to get in that kind of trouble with mom and dad, right? Like this doesn't look fun. I think the other issue too is that we're not armed to the teeth. I mean, part of what I see going on in the U.S., you know, people showing up armed to the houses of uh, people who are just working the electoral system. I mean, that stuff is bananas. And in Canada, we just simply are not weaponized like that to the teeth. We're not a population that has an orientation towards violence. The U.S. is very much a combative country, legally 
physically, we're, we're just not, you know, we come from a different background. You said off the top, we're more sober. I'm not sure we're more sober. Canadians do enjoy uh, altering ourselves a lot, but we're definitely not as violent. And we're definitely not as entrenched ideologically in this country for, I think, the reasons that I cited. And there's probably a whole host more going all the way back to how we were founded. Clint's going to leave uh, the last word on this view. Bifurcated. What was your other, what was your word again there, Clint? Epistemic breach. Epistemic breach. Why has it been an epistemic breach? No, no, we, we won't say that. Please explain to the rest of the world what's happened to Rudolf Giuliani. He hasn't got control of his uh, his colon. In the middle of, uh, of hearings is uh, loudly flatulent. His hair dye is running down his brow. And he's obviously lost all semblance of sense that he once had. More than, was it 3,000 Americans died yesterday because of COVID, which is uh, 1.5 times more people that died in 9-11. And at that moment, he was America's mayor, New York's mayor, and actually showed clear, strong leadership. What's happened to a once great man, Clint? I think that in 20 or 40 years, when the history books are written, no one is going to believe that Rudy Giuliani was a real person at this time. I, I, I just have no idea how he's going to appear in our history books uh, in another generation or two. Um, but I, I do think there are some factors that have contributed to not just his own, uh, you know, kind of split from reality, but, but to how a lot of people in the country follow him to that place. One of those is kind of the, the do your own research movement. And this goes to particularly the conservative uh, effort to, to delegitimize experts, scientists, economists, historians. The idea that people should do their own research is also a hallmark of conspiracy theories like QAnon. But it doesn't mean do your own research. It really means don't listen to the experts who have really done the research. It, it's about delegitimizing them. That allows people to go into the, uh, the petri dish of social media, where, you know, there is no gatekeeper for what's a good idea or a bad idea. They can pick and choose from all of these, this whole buffet of, uh, of bad ideas and conspiracy theories. And, and then they've sealed themselves off from, from alternative worldviews and any challenge to that, uh, to that vision. And in the United States, that means not just sealing themselves off from mainstream news and sealing off their, uh, their social media environment. It also means that they've kind of put it, uh, sorted themselves politically into communities that, that are democratic communities or republican communities. So I, I think when you put all of that together, you get this echo chamber or, or just this worldview that allows for things like, uh, like Rudy Giuliani and the, the claims of voter fraud, uh, and, and, and all of that. I think it's even more sinister than that. As soon as there is that orientation towards social media, the algorithms in social media keep feeding that demon, right? They'll, they'll keep taking you down. Absolutely. And down. Yeah. And I, I think we're just beginning to understand the impact. Even I'm always fascinated, you know, Twitter finds for me what it thinks will extend my own perception bias. And so you have to keep pushing yourself out of your own trends that are showing up, right? So we're, we're very much being manipulated for the purpose of being for commerce. And, and I think that as people realize that, hopefully, and I know that isn't today the day that Facebook is having to face down congressional oversight for their complicity in so much of this and, and where they are as social media giants. So, you know, it's not just that people are 
being easily duped or being intellectually lazy. We are being manipulated at a, at a level we don't even understand. And, and as we dig into that and hopefully put some kind of framework around that, it will enable people to have a broader appetite for information. Mm, wise words. Uh, let us move on. Morning, Topshop in Cardiff opened as normal and it will continue to for now. Arcadia is in administration but it's still trading and no redundancies have been announced yet. The company blames coronavirus but Arcadia's sales were on the slide long before lockdown. In a statement tonight the chief executive said this is an incredibly sad day for all of our colleagues as well as our suppliers and our many other stakeholders. The impact of the Covid-19 pandemic including the forced closure of our stores for prolonged periods has severely impacted on trading across all of our brands. Sir Philip Green bought Arcadia 18 years ago and really hit the big time. He already controlled BHS and had appeared to transform its fortunes. Green went on to enjoy success with access to celebrities and prime ministers. He was knighted in 2006, but his fortunes changed dramatically. First BHS went bust a year after he sold it. Now the rest of his empire has crumbled. Arcadia is in administration along with its eight brands, 13,000 staff and 400 shops. The administrator, Deloitte, will try to sell the loss-making business as a whole or, failing that, parts of it. The aim will be to raise as much money as possible for Arcadia's creditors, those who are owed money. They include banks, suppliers, the pension scheme, the taxman, landlords and Sir Philip's family. The first week of December has brought a big blow to the UK high street with more than 26,000 jobs gone. Bon Marsh has joined Debenhams and the Arcadia Group, the owner of Topshop and Dorothy Perkins, in collapsing into administration. Emma has COVID killed the UK high street and, dare I say, Main Street for our American cousins around the world. I think COVID has exposed trends that were coming anyway. Um, the high street has long been um, falling out of fashion as the way that we shop. Um, the internet has long been taking hey, I see what you did there, falling out of fashion, me talking about Topshop. You're good. I'm so good. I'm so good I didn't even realise I'd done it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite funny for me because I'm just getting to the age where I might have started shopping at Dorothy Perkins. <laughs> Basically, the Arcadia Group never really grasped online commerce at all. Other, other high street brands did much better at moving themselves into that space. Philip Green never really got it. He was you know, very poo-pooing. Oh, people always want to try clothes on and it's just not turned out to be that way. There is a real need to think about how we have communal space still because that, it, it doesn't have to be around commerce, but it should, we should have spaces where we gather, whether that means more Going back to hopefully having um, more social space, restaurants, theatres, arts venues, whether that means um, civic space, so places where we can just be and gather together. Because I think what's missing um, with the high street, partly it's um, jobs. Jobs is a huge, huge issue. If we don't have retail jobs, what do we have? Um, Usually warehouse packers who are paid considerably worse. But also what we miss is, you know, the places where we gather together, where we see other people. And if this year has taught us anything, it's that we really, really miss seeing other people. Mm. Emma's just made, made me think, cause I, I utterly believe in the commons, that space where we all come and meet. I believe in it intellectually and I believe in it physically. You know, the commons was the common ground. Where do we stand with Warner Brothers basically saying that they're going to not put out their movies or at least 
But the same days they go in cinemas, they're going to be on, on a streaming service on HBO Max. Many people are seeing this is going to be the death of the cinema throughout the world. How important is that going to be for us to have another avenue whereby COVID hasn't necessarily killed the common space, but accelerated trends that were there before? When I, whenever I tell the story of me watching Black Panther, he to that cinematic experience were the whoops and the hollers and the gasps because I watched it in Oakland and it's uh, the first scene is in Oakland, California. Ditto the death of Spider-Man in Infinity War when the woman next to me was crying. She said, oh no, not Peter, not Spider-Man 2. Laura, you're, you're, you're nodding away sagely. If cinemas go, how important a loss will that be for all of us around the world? I don't know that it's going to be stay or go. I think it's going to change. So a lot of us during COVID who had the means to probably upgraded our tech, created home theaters in anticipation. Uh, and so we've got a pretty nice setup, right? Nice and safe at home. And if you really want to make it interactive, I'm sure they'll figure out a way to stream it with a live chat or some sort of a function so we can get the oops and ahs and little hearts flying up. <laughs> you know, we, we want to have that sense of community. They'll figure it out. I think it might often open up the door to more live theater too using those stages and those venues. I'm not talking about going back to Dionysius or anything, but this idea of let's let's do the things we can't do on TV. So I, I kind of look at this like taped theater and live theater, and Emma's far more astute uh, at all of this than I am. Um, so maybe all of those spaces can be changed, right? The, the function of them can be changed. I personally have never found uh, movies as a particularly communal event. I mean, I do remember people clapping at the end of Titanic, and you know, and I, I ran to two theaters. What? To when? when when the ship went down, people are applauding that. <laughs> you, you, you Canadians are dark. You think we're way nicer than we are. We're actually quite evil. <laughs> we're just more subtle. <laughs> but no, I mean, like I can, you can remember great films being applauded, and you know, Jurassic World uh, when it came out, uh, the the most, and which I forget which one it was called. I think Jurassic World. We ran between theaters to see it twice back to back on the big screen, right? So there is some of that, but let's face it, going to a movie is what you do when you have a date, you don't really want to talk to them and don't know what to do. You sit in the movie theater in the dark and have your own experience. So I just don't- Whoa, 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 Laura. Clint, <laughs> what did you do in the cinema or in the dark on a date, Clint? Uh, this I want to hear. I'm not well, answering I... this question. <laughs> <laughs> Depends what row you're sitting in. If you're in the back row, it's a little different. <laughs> Clint, as well as a man that obviously likes to go to Las Vegas and bet big, you're the type of man that's on the back of a dark cinema, aren't you, Clint? I, I do love to go to the movies. I'm not going <laughs> to disclose where in the theater I sit, um, uh, but I do go to the movies a lot. It's, it's a special experience for me, and it's been one of the devastating parts of the, of the pandemic. The theaters aren't open, and, and I'm pretty uh, shocked at Warner Brothers' move. I think it is a, it's terrible. I do think movies are a communal experience. I think we're going to be looking for more of those in communities, one of the things that's uh, happening in D.C. is that the uh, the public transportation is being cut because ridership is down and they don't have the funding for it. And that's going to have a huge impact on not just movie theaters, but a lot of stuff like how people gather, um, where people go. You know, are people going to go down to the mall if they can't ride the metro to get there? Um, and so, you know, what does that mean for neighborhoods? So it, it's it's not just movie theaters. It's I, I think you're right, Rosal, that it's going to be a lot of different ways of, of how we connect in our communities. There was a big protest at our Hamilton City Hall for 13 days. People stood outside in the freezing cold trying to get a meeting with the mayor to talk about emergency housing. And one of the things that they did, and I think it'll warm your hearts, especially yours, Clint, is that they would they broadcast, they put movies on the side of City Hall out in the cold and watch them. 
So they managed to do a communal outdoor theater experience, these protesters, to keep, give them something to get through the night. And so I don't disagree that movies can have that. I just don't think that we are going to be using buildings the same way. I think we're going to find other, more creative ways to get that social experience back that we've all been missing so much. And it might not just be in these super multiplex places, right? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. One of the things that's great about DC is they have a, lo- a lot of different communities have exactly what you described there in the summer. Um, they used to do it down on, on the National Mall. They called it Screen on the Green. Um, and they would show classic movies every week. Um, and, and, and different communities now have taken that up and, and are projecting uh, movies on, on the sides of big buildings. And, and it's great. It, it is really it is really neat to see how the communities come together for those events. But I, I just don't think it's going to compare for me personally to being in a dark theater Maybe in the back row, maybe in the middle, somewhere uh, in the dark with with a bunch of uh, a bunch of people watching a movie. Emma, uh, one of the interesting things that uh, people have noticed within, let's say, footfall in the UK is that smaller towns haven't noticed the big drop off that the larger cities have in terms of um, human traffic, and that is in large part because we kind of are against chains now aren't we there was this been this backdrop of uh of people being anti-chains being much more independent retailers and, and those smaller towns have those independent retailers it looks like with the collapse of these large retailers that we're going to see an acceleration of of independent retailers so surely this is actually going to be a good thing for the uk high street um i don't know i mean I think that's a very utopian way of looking at things. I mean, I know you're you, but <laughs> um, I, I don't see independent retailers getting the insurance to go and set up in a big, you know, on Oxford Street or whatever, where you know the big Dorothy Perkins is, is closed down. Um, you know, that's a, that's big retail. That's that's big real estate. Um, I think that what we'll see is much more dispersed high streets in places like where I live. We've already got a lot of independent retail around here because it's getting very shishy. Um, I mean, Walthamstow already is. Leighton is is up and coming. I live on the border of the two. Yeah, we're turning into bloody Shoreditch. (laughs) Two people working in a nice little candle boutique is not the same employment-wise as 200 people working in a Dorothy Perkins and that's what concerns me. Mm. But aren't we seeing the end of high street clothes shops? I, I was always really struck coming to San Francisco six years ago that I thought it was all going to be strip malls and chain shops. And actually, because of local civic legislation, they've really legislated against multiples. So you can still have clothes shops here and you can have the butchers, you can have the bakers, but it's experiential shopping in a way that we don't really get within uh, the UK. UK high streets are dominated, at least traditionally have been dominated by the same old brands, whether it's Boots or PC World or Topshop, whatever. Whereas I'm really surprised in Northern California, every high street is radically different and has its own kind of unique charm. I think the problem is... What we're losing is the mid-level fashion, your top shops, your Dorothy Perkins. But TK Maxx is going nowhere. You know, your £6 made-in-a-sweatshop um, T-shirt, you're going to be able to buy plenty of those, and that's a problem. Mm. And Primark, yeah. As someone who's a, a proud son of Birmingham and the fact that Birmingham has had 
billions of pounds of inward investment uh, for new shopping malls and new for new retail areas of the city that potentially Birmingham is going to have a catastrophic crash in in, in the next uh, two or three years. But I'm somewhat optimistic that small and medium sized uh, retail will actually come in and swoop in and actually save the, the city of Birmingham as well as HS2. But as Emma has said, I am me and I'm an eternal optimist. On that note, on have we seen the end of the high street or the main street, are we going to go on to our last topic, which is the vaccine in Canada? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. For months, Canadians have been told a return to normal would only begin once a COVID-19 vaccine was approved. At long last, that day has come. Late this morning, Health Canada announced the news that the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine has been approved for use in Canada. At Health Canada's authorization of the first COVID-19 vaccine in Canada. Dr. Supriya Sharma, Health Canada's chief medical officer, says this is a milestone in the fight against COVID-19. Health Canada approved this vaccine through an interim order pathway that allowed us to accelerate the overall review process while still applying our rigorous standards for safety, efficacy and quality and making our decision based only on science and evidence. Today, Pfizer says they will be ready to ship vaccines to Canada as soon as they receive the green light from Health Canada to begin distribution. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced two days ago that almost a quarter of a million doses of the two-dose Pfizer vaccine will be ready before the end of the year following approval from Health Canada. Laura, what can Canadians expect now that the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine has been approved in your great country? We can expect it to be distributed in a pretty orderly fashion. Just here in Ontario, they brought in one of our top military, uh, retired military people, and they're already running national and provincial distribution pilots and practices. We have a pretty strong healthcare system here. There are areas of the country, of course, that are more remote, and they've already got a plan for getting those vaccines there. They prioritized who is going to get it, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of pushback about that. If anything, the pushback came from other parties saying that Trudeau was saying the timeline was you know not ambitious or Trudeau wasn't being ambitious enough. Frankly, I thought Trudeau was managing expectations. 
you know, telling us that we'd all get it sort of by September and then, whoa, well, wait a sec, we have it coming now, right? So I think that Trudeau is just always trying to under-promise and over-deliver and it works well for him. Most Canadians are pretty pleased that our our government procured, I think, more vaccines per capita than any other government in the world. We might not be first in line for all of Pfizer's, but we certainly have a whole lot coming. We've invested a lot in it. So since the beginning of this pandemic, we've uh, thrown money at the problem and Canada will see how we dig out of it on the other side. We're relying heavily on a kind of a green comeback, I think, economically, but uh, we are expecting to get it. I think most of us expect to be in the second round in April. And I'm holding out hope that by Canada Day, we might be in a position where we've really got this thing under control. Uh, but that's where we are. It's a pretty good day. <laughs> How can you complain about that kind of news? Emma probably will because, you know, she's always dark and whatever. And I'm always sunny or plants. I'm, I'm just joking, by the way, Emma. Um, the vaccines will be distributed to jurisdictions on a per capita basis. What does that mean in plain English? That's That's got to do with population, you know, densities and coming out in the larger areas. Like the provinces are all waiting for confirmation on the doses they're going to get and how much. This, again, goes back to the Canadian culture. We're a little bit different. I'm not going to say we're the nicest, most sharing people on earth, but you haven't seen a whole lot of these vaccine wars where people are fighting to get to the head of the queue. As you guys would say, there isn't a lot of that. There is some anti-vaxxing in this country, and there'll have to be some good public relations campaigns and public awareness campaigns around the importance of the vaccination. What we're talking about right now really is the possibility of a vaccination passport, and that might get a little pushback, people not loving the idea of having to prove they've been vaccinated to access services. So I'm not saying it's going to be all smooth sailing for us on this, but uh, I am really heartened whenever I get sick of listening to the politicians do press conferences on the vaccine or the virus to hear someone like General Hillier come out and uh, say that he's already running drills to get this thing distributed. So I'm feeling pretty positive about it. And just as a quaint little Canadian note, on our little tiny island of PEI, one of the tuna fishermen realized that his fishery had the deep freeze freezers and called the government and they called them back and now the tuna fishery is helping out, right? So, <laughs> And just the last word on this for you. I know that in the UK, vaccinations have actually started. A 90-year-old lady uh, was the very first recipient of the vaccine in the UK to much hoopla. Canada itself has actually had a, a hand in formulating the vaccine as well. So could you tell us what part Canadian science has actually played in this? I count a lot, actually. I can tell you that there is a lot of uh, anger at the government politically, the fact that we're not in the manufacturing business, that our, our manufacturing capacities have been somewhat gutted over different administrate or different governments over the past 20 years. And when we were initially hearing this idea that, you know, the UK was going to start vaccinating before the new year and we were going to be waiting until September because we don't domestically produce it, there is a lot of anger about that. In terms of our scientific input, I, I don't want to speak to that with any kind of authority, but I can tell you that after this, there's going to be some reflection on what Canada has done with its own capacity to manufacture and to be self-sustaining, if you will. Going forward in this global competitive environment, we might have the money to buy up a whole lot of it, but if we have to wait to get it because we don't domestically produce it, that might not be something that we want to do going forward. So it'll be an interesting discussion. Right. Let's move on to takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time where we look at the positive we look at the upsides um it, the sun is always rising never setting on this section of the show it's takeaways of the last seven days 
as is our wanton tradition, we start with the new boy first, or the newish boy first, because you have you have graced uh, have graced the show before, haven't you, Clint? We're going to start with you over there in Washington D.C. What's been your takeaway of the last seven days? Uh, one of the things I found uh, was the National Constitution Center uh, did a constitution drafting project, and they brought together uh, a group of libertarians, a group of progressives, and a group of conservatives to to get them to look at how they would update the U.S. Constitution. And, and what changes they would make. And I'm a little bit of a constitution nerd. I worked at the Senate for a long time, and the Senate takes their constitutional duties very seriously. And so it's just really interesting to see all of these different viewpoints and how they uh, envisioned the, the positive changes that could be made to foster a little bit more uh, productivity and a little bit more unity in the nation by, by changing the constitution. And, and one of the things that was very encouraging was that they, they all pretty much accepted the constitution as, as the basis for for what they would work with nobody said let's throw this out nobody said let's scrap the whole project and start over uh, they all they all saw a lot of prospect and a lot of uh, potential in in moving forward with uh what we're doing already are you really telling me that they didn't say you need to uh reinstate uh the moniker of england as the, the moniker of america uh well it'd be the queen of the queen of america for now um <laughs> she's she's not out yet um and i have been enjoying the crown on the net on netflix uh, uh lately so i don't know there's some different perspectives there and and there have certainly been some people who over the last four years have definitely thought that maybe a a strong-armed monarchy would would not be such a a bad thing given the alternative that we were in i tell you who believes in that definitely emma burnell she's a monarchist through and through i tell you she doesn't believe in in, in the rights of the people do you emma absolutely <laughs> not no um pure monarchy rule but as long as it's me hey there you go i thought it was you <laughs> <laughs> Emma Burnell, what's been your takeaway the last seven days, my dear? So I'm going to go in a completely different direction from Clint because I'm still in. It is the is it the 11th or the 10th of December and I have not yet heard Last Christmas. There is a game. I don't know if you play this in the States or if you play this in Canada, but there's a game that we play in the UK called Whamageddon. Ooh. And I have lasted longer this year than I've lasted for a very long time. I've not yet heard Last Christmas by Wham. You have to stay in as long as you can. And I just think this year of all years, just a little bit of silly is what we really, really need. So I'm very proud that I've managed to last this long. It's not anything like Clint's much more intellectual takeaway. But you know what? It's making me giggle. <laughs> That's what we need. We don't exactly have that, but I know I don't consider my Christmas started until I hear the Band-Aid song, Do They Know It's Christmas, and, you t and Bono do that bit. Then the I know that the December, I was driving home and we had uh, Merry Christmas Everyone by Slade and there is nothing more magnificent than the last verse of that song which is um, when you ride on down the hillside in a buggy you have made when you mm. land upon your head then you've been slayed mm. a triple pun triple <laughs> pun amazing <laughs> You know what? <laughs> you know, you know what I want to say though. Tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. That's what I'm talking about. Come on, Laura Babcock. Uh, what's been your takeaway? Well, let me just give a quick nod to the judicial system in the U.S. That one branch of government seems to be holding up the other two. <laughs> I'm really happy to see that. There was a point where I didn't think any of them were going to be able to sustain the pressure of this coup. But that's 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 a little bit of, a little bit of light. Uh, actually, I want to address the. You guys are talking about High Street, Main Street. 
one thing that I think has been good out of this, we've had a terrible response in Canada in terms of the shutdowns, right? We It's been a patchwork, it's been inconsistent, it's fallen away from metrics and become totally about appeasement to different uh, groups and constituencies and lobbyists, and especially in Ontario. Some industries have completely suffered disproportionately and unfairly. It was okay for a while and then it got really terrible. So a lot of businesses are really suffering and don't think they can make it through in Toronto through another shutdown that's happening, another lockdown. What I have seen, in a country where there's a whole lot of big box stores and suburbia and a lot of you know big SUVs and I'm seeing a recommitment to Main Street, to small businesses, to mom and pop shops. It's almost getting to the point of naming and shaming. You know, you're afraid to go to a big box store for the fear of being seen shopping there, which is great for all of the small businesses. So I'm hoping that coming out of this nightmare, we will have reinvested in our local merchants uh, and we will have changed our purchasing habits away from the Amazons of the world and the Walmarts and back to people who actually support our community. Amen to that, sister. Amen to that. My takeaway, and it kind of came off the back of uh, the Warner Brothers announcement. And yes, uh, as as Laura also said as well, um, we all have our own cinematic setups at home now. I bought a soundbar the other day. My neighbours must hate me. The amount of bass rumble coming out of, of my speakers at the moment. And I went back and I watched Captain America Civil War winter soldier and thor ragnarok and the first infinity um, infinity war movie they are brilliantly executed and conceived bits of entertainment now full disclosure i'm a big captain america fan i literally wear captain america underpants right i love superheroes i love the baddies getting punched in the face uh, on a big screen and i love an explosion but i like to see myself as someone who's somewhat cerebral as well and Captain America Civil War and Winter Soldier deal with pretty prescient themes, whether it's mass surveillance or whether it is the liberty and the freedom of the individual over the collective, individual responsibility, etc., loss, longing, friendship. These are universal themes, but also deep political themes as well. And in isolation, just watching those, admittingly, admitting that I come to it predisposed to liking the genre because I love a superhero. But stripping that back, Captain America Winter Soldier, great 1970s spy thriller, you know. And I just said to myself, we could actually be looking at the high point of blockbuster cinema with these movies. You know, I'm not saying anything particularly new, but just watching them in the last week uh, really reinforced actually how well conceived these films are, that they work on many different levels. So anyway, that's my takeaway of the week. Go watch those movies again. And just for sheer laughs, watch Thor Ragnarok as well. And there's literally is a, uh, a gag in every scene. They are brilliant brilliantly conceived and executed bits of cinematic entertainment clint losey sir uh you're our new boy why don't you go first tell us where people can find you on social media sir i'm at cm losey at uh, on twitter uh, how about you emma burnell i'm at emma burnell underscore on twitter laura babcock leaving the best till last <laughs> where can people catch up with you on social media I'm at Laura Babcock on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 
folks uh, i'm going to put out a, a shout to you uh please go on to apple itunes or a podcast of your choice and write us a review you know what it'd be your little present from you to us just in time for christmas i think there will be another episode another barnstorm rip-roaring episode of mid-atlantic before christmas if by any chance there isn't have a merry christmas but you know what show your want your need your desire for more mid-atlantic by going on to a podcatcher writing us that five-star review so we need more clint that emma's not bad but actually you know what i quite like that laura too and that roy field you know uh, but as long as it's five stars that'd be awesome that's us folks don't forget left of center politics is right politics we see you all again soon another mid-atlantic tatty bye tarara bit doodle bit bye-bye
tears I'll give it to someone special Extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers, and if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.